are now listening to an exclusive interview only on uclaradio.com. Hello, 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 listeners. You are listening to uclaradio.com. This is the news hour every day at 4 p.m. We got a very special show for y'all today. Um, we have a we have a we have a quick interview with um, presidential candidate um, Marianne Williamson. So let's uh, let's not keep her waiting any longer. Let's jump right into it. Hello, Miriam. Hi. Hi. Um, thank you so much again for agreeing to do this show. Um, so let's just jump right into it. You are. Um, running for uh, the Democratic um, nomination for the 2020 election. So um, I guess my first question is just a really general question. Why Why are you running for president? You know, it's so interesting because I, I, I keep hearing that. Everybody's asking why I'm running. I think I'm running for the same reason everybody else is running, because I feel that I have a, an agenda for this country, a vision of this country, and a skill set that could serve this country in a way that is um, an option that should be placed before the American people. Fantastic. Thank you so much. So we've got a couple of DJs in the booth with us to ask some more questions. So I'm going to hand it off to Ruthie. Hi. Um, so a lot of your platform centers on the welfare and well-being of children, um, which is not something we typically see at the top of a lot of candidates' platforms. So how do you feel that your election uh, will be able to make a difference in the lives of children that are typically unreachable by the programs you want to improve, such as children in human trafficking who currently make up, say, like roughly 50 percent of the trafficked people in America? Well, we have a $91 billion um, uh, sex trafficking business in this uh, country. It's a huge industry. Super Bowl itself is one of the most and one of the largest sex trafficking um, events that we have. We have a country in which the undue influence of money is so profound on our system that we have what I call a corporatocracy. We have a government that does more to advocate for short-term profits for huge multinational corporations than it does to advocate for the citizens of this country and the planet. Now, children are not old enough to vote, so they don't form a constituency. They're not old enough to work, and so they do not have any financial leverage. And in a system such as ours, where our government has become little more than a system of legalized bribery, what possible chance do those children have to compete with the clout of all the multinational corporate forces whose money floods Congress every day? So what we have, whether it comes to trafficking, whether it has to do with the fact that so many of our schools don't have libraries, whether it has to do with the fact that millions of American children go hungry, whether it has to do with the fact that millions of American children are chronically traumatized in various ways, whether they have a PTSD, no worse than a, no, no better than a returning veteran based on the violence in their communities, or the fact that so many of them go to classrooms that don't even have the adequate school supplies to teach a child to read, and that if a child can't read by the age of eight, that the, the uh, chances of high school graduation are drastically decreased and the chances of incarceration are drastically increased. As long as we have a system where through tax policies, through uh, corporate subsidies and so forth, we systematically move vast majority of the wealth of this country, because after all, we have 1% of Americans who own more wealth than the bottom 90%. Children are the bottom of the totem pole 
of those who can get the help that they need. We need wraparound services. We need restorative justice. We need conflict resolution. We need schools that are palaces and temples of culture and arts and learning. We're the only major uh, democracy that bases our educational funding on property taxes, which means that if a child, you know, won the birth lottery and is in in a financially advantaged community, their chance of a very fine public education is very high. But if that child didn't, then it's low. So for a nation, just like for an individual, where are you putting your resources? Where are you putting your money? We have the people who know how to handle this. We have the social justice advocates. We have the teachers. We have the social workers. We have the experts in early childhood education. We have what it would take to rescue these children, and we should rescue them no differently than if they were the victims of a natural disaster. But that, what, the, the amount of money that we're spending and the amount of resources and the amount of attention, you just said yourself, this isn't usually what you hear uh, politicians talk about. Politicians mainly just normalize the despair of these children because these, there are no votes there. So mine is a politics of conscience, and it's not pandering to popularity. It's, it's talking about America's need to do the right thing. And if I'm president, we will have a, a, a department of children and youth to consolidate all these already very fine efforts that we have, but that need to be ramped up exponentially to save America's children. Hi, um, I had a question about uh, when it comes to tuition rates for college students. So the reality is a lot of young adults, the first time they vote is when they first (laughs) enter college. And for a lot of them, the sad reality is they found out, you know, a lot more rights that they had, which they didn't previously know about. And this uh, has devastating effects when it comes to uh, borrowing money from big corporations uh, when it comes to paying for college, because a lot of students feel that the current administration is against them. They feel cheated. They feel victimized that they were signed up for loans with high interest rates, with outrageous policies, which they knew close to nothing about. And this also leads into debt forgiveness. After college, a lot of students feel like... um, they, they don't have a way to pay back their debt, even working, you know, X number of years. They're still behind on payments, and they feel like this college was a promise to them as a sort of uh, investment that will have that they could reap the benefits, you know, as soon as they graduate. But the sad reality is that a lot of students don't feel this at all. And I was wondering, how do you plan to attack this and change uh, the current system as it is? Well, the most important thing is that those who feel that way are absolutely correct. It's not just a feeling they have. That is the reality. We have a government that does more to cap people's dreams, to thwart people in their efforts to thrive, than it does to do what governments are set up to do. Our Declaration of Independence says that governments are instituted to secure the rights the God-given, unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. A student wants education because the student is hoping that, hoping that it will help him or her self-actualize. The money of this country, the peace of this country, the prosperity of this country, the future earnings and future energy and future good of this country, which lies in the hands of our young people more than with anyone, lies in people being able to self-actualize. We now have a government which does more to thwart those dreams, so what I wish to see is free college, free university. You shouldn't even have to worry. No American should have to worry about health care. No American should even have to worry about how to pay for their kids to go to college. No American should even have to worry about whether or not they can pay. And no American should have to worry about those tax loans, which you just said, you know, you probably realize this. You know, of that trillion and a half dollar debt, the mm-hmm. largest part of it is carried by baby boomers. There are people in their 40s and 50s. At what point are people supposed to be able to relax? 
So this is just this is an example of the corruption of our government. And if I'm president of the United States, it stops. Thank you. Hi. So on your uh, recent proposals and state uh, statements, part of your website, uh, you said that you support um, the need for reparations for African-Americans. So I was wondering, what would that look like in like fruition? I, uh, my plan is to appoint a reparations council, board of trustees. There are many black leaders, scholars who have worked on this for years. People such as Sandy Darity at Duke University, Ta-Nehisi Coates. There are black leaders in culture, academia, um, uh, and uh, politics who, in the choice of this reparations council, would uh, obviously have to be, it's very significant, because there would have to be such a high trust uh, by both white and black America. I propose, well, the number I have proposed is between $200 billion and $500 billion. Anything less than $100 billion is an insult. Now, I'm also aware, having worked on this for a while, that no matter what number you come up with, some people are going to say it's too high, some people are going to say it's too low. For instance, if you were to take the fact that there were between 4 and 5 million slaves when the Civil War was over in 1865, and if you were to translate that into the fact that uh, uh, General Sherman promised to every former slave family of four 40 acres and a mule, it, you know, you do the math equivalent to today, that would be trillions of dollars. I don't believe trillions of dollars is, is anywhere near politically possible. But I believe two to five hundred billion dispersed over twenty years. So you have this reparations council, and the stipulation, according to my plan, is for purposes of academic, no, educational and economic uh, renewal. So then this council would make the determination of how this money was to be is to be dispersed over a period of twenty years. The only stipulation being for purposes of economic and educational renewal. Thank you so much for that question. And thank you again for doing this interview. And we want to be cognizant of like your time. So our, I think our final question is going to be, um, it's January 2020. Marianne Williamson is elected the president of the United States. What What is what is the, the next step for the first 100 days? Well, first of all, it would be January 2021. In oh, excuse me. <laughs> I can't get there that fast. It's midterms. Excuse okay. me. <laughs> In, in relation to everything we've discussed on this call, we have got to get the money out of politics. One of the first things I would do is to submit to Congress legislation to establish public funding for federal campaigns. That, that is the only way at this point that we can override Citizens United. Secondly, um, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, has said that she wishes for New Zealand to be the best place for a child to uh, grow up. I will call her and say, girlfriend, you are on, because I want to have a very healthy competition with her on that. I would work very hard in the first 100 days to build my relationship with both Palestinian and Israeli leaders, because you would have a president, really the first time in a long time, a president who was felt by both Palestinians and Israelis to have a sincere and deep listening and a profoundly equal uh, and deep support for both uh, legitimate security concerns of Israel and the dignity, economic hopes, and opportunities of the Palestinian people. I would work very, I would be very, very involved. I want a Department of U a U.S. Department of Peacebuilding because right now our defense agenda is driven more by profit, short-term profits for defense contractors 
than it does for any kind of peace-building agenda. You can't just take medicine. You have to also cultivate health. We can't just prepare for endless wars. We have to cultivate peace. And because I will appoint a world-class environmentalist to the head of the EPA, and the Environmental Protection Agency will become a magnet for world-class environmental scientists, sustainability experts, et cetera, my declaration that the, the greatest moral challenge of our generation is to deal with the climate crisis. We have 12 years, and I would work very hard to put all the power of the executive branch at the service of these extraordinary environmental scientists who are now there, no more chemical executives at the EPA, no more uh, uh, oil company executives at, at the EPA. The debate is over, and uh, not only the, the uh, scientists at the EPA, but also the American people would know that the President of the United States understands we have 12 years and is going to do everything possible that America lead the effort and we handle this crisis. Well, Ms. Williamson, thank you so much. and. Um the best of luck on your campaign. Thank you. Thank you so much. I hope that your listeners will go to Marianne2020.com and uh, see what more I have there. All right. Thank you so much for your time again. Thank you. Thank have you. a good one. Bye.